Good morning. We get to do something a slightly differently, so I'm going to have you guys all sit this morning. A couple weeks ago at our quarterly congregational meeting, we got to welcome, I think, nine new members into our fellowship. And so at this time, we're actually going to do some membership vows. So I'm going to invite those uh, new members to stand, and I'm going to read a statement, and um, you get to affirm it. And then there's something for the members after this. Do you reaffirm that now and into the future, you are setting your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, even eternal life? Do you vow to regulate your life and participation within this local church body according to the divine word in the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord and by his spirit? Do you further vow to do your best by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk within the mission, fellowship, family covenant at all times, holding yourself accountable to it, being willing to hold your, being willing to restore it should it be broken, holding your brothers and sisters accountable to it as well? And if you fail to walk in this manner, do you vow that you will accept loving discipline from this church and its members with the end goal of restoration to obedience in Christ? Do you take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation and in the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ within this local body, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Mission Fellowship and the entire Church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? And lastly, are you ready to join with this body in defending the gospel witness and preaching of this church? Awesome. Thank the Lord for all of you guys. You guys can have a seat. And at this time, I'd like to invite the members of Mission Fellowship to stand. And we are going to say our vows back to these new members. Do you, the members of Mission Fellowship, acknowledge? Why do they always give me the most emotional parts of every service? I don't know. <clears throat> do you, the members of Mission Fellowship, acknowledge and publicly receive these new members as a gift to Christ's church here at Mission. And do you vow to love them and pray for them and work together with them in the protection and proclamation of the gospel for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ Jesus? We do. Awesome. You guys can be seated and we'll pray. Father God, you are perfect and holy. There is no one like you. You alone can create and sustain life. And we, we are unworthy to be in your presence. By our very nature, we have been corrupted by sin and death. By our own choices, we have profaned your great name and stained ourselves with unholiness. But we gather this morning to give thanks and to remember that you deserve all of our praise because you have not left us helpless. You have remembered us in our sin and guilt and given us your son, Jesus to make peace with us, to call us your children, and to invite us back into your presence. And so, Jesus, we give thanks and praise to you that by your blood, we who have hoped in your name have been cleansed of our unrighteousness and have been raised to new life in you. And this morning, fathers, we just recited our vows to one another. We are thankful for these new members that have been added to our number here at Mission. We are thankful for you calling these people to yourself, for saving them, and for giving them faith in your Son. 
We thank you for the work that you have done in this body to prepare us to receive them with grateful hearts. We pray that by your spirit working in us and through us, that we would boldly proclaim the good news of your son, Jesus, in our city and in our church. That we would be known as a church that is faithful to you and to each other, just as you first have been faithful to us. May we grow in our faith together. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. As it is faithfully preached by our brother Nick this morning, may our hearts be made more like yours. May we have ears to hear and respond with obedience. Bring our hidden sin to light, convict us, and encourage us that we might remain faithful to you. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our King, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tyler. What a privilege it really is to uh, be able to welcome new members into the church and to affirm their testimony of faith as you all sit here and faithfully pray for and care for them. It's really a joy and it is a, a privilege that we have been given as Christians. This morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9, so feel free to use whatever resource you, you have, whether it's your Bible, um, in hard copy or on your phone, or your notebook that the church has given you to turn to Joshua chapter 9. The history of our company has a few ups and downs, uh, especially in the, in the beginning, at the start of our country. We started as a group of 13 colonies, and, and through some very uh, famous events, declared our independence from England. It was these events that really kind of defined us as a country. It set our trajectory to where we are at now. From the Boston Tea Party to Paul Revere's ride and the battle at Bunker Hill, some would say that America, the United States, came from humble beginnings. And this is true in one sense of the word. And yet, humility isn't really a quality that one would define the citizens of this country. <laughs> Just going to say that. It, it, it is hard to truly acknowledge one's uh, inherent humility when the foundation of the country is built on rebellion. Even in America, though, even here in our country, one not only would assume, but I think if we polled, I'm confident that we would recognize, and people would recognize, that humility is a virtue. Humility is desirous. While not readily possessed by everyone, it is worth attaining. While the world around us appears to not live humbly, the people of God are called, and not just called, they are defined differently than the world. They are defined by their humility. This morning, I'd like you to ponder the question, is my life humbly submitted to God? Ponder that question this morning. Is my life humbly submitted to God? Joshua chapter 9 is, is full of familiar themes. Uh, themes of conquest, themes of espionage, deception, mistakes. And it contains a clear picture of God's grace and his mercy. The people of God are, in Joshua are continuing to press forward in their conquest of the promised land. After being humiliated at Ai and then reinstating the covenant, Israel turns their eyes to the rest of the land. 
if you are a note taker, here is the big idea. God saves all people who come and humbly submit to him. God saves all people who, who come and humbly submit to him. And Joshua 9 seems to serve two purposes. The first uh, portion of this chapter, we will see the leaders of Israel act without consulting God and, and without consulting his will. And we're left to wonder, what is going to happen? And then we wait and we see that the response of God to both Israel and their enemies is filled with grace and with mercy. The outline for today is, is broken into two parts, and these will be up on the screen later, so if you don't get them all right now, that is okay. Uh, mistakes are made in verses 1 through 15, and in point 2, humility is the response in verses 16 through 27. Let's read verses 1 through 15 of Joshua chapter 9 now together. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they acted on their part, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And when they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of the country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It, is still warm. it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. <clears throat> In the first two verses of this chapter, we see that the land has kind of changed their disposition towards the people of Israel. Instead of being afraid, instead of cowering in fear and their hearts melting like water, Israel's defeat at Ai has given them a hope that they too might defeat Israel. 
So what did they do? They united together. They banded together to fight. But there was one group, um, not just group, but there were multiple cities in this group. There was one group of people who took a different approach. Uh, look at verse 4. What did, what, is, what did they do? In verse 4, they, it tells us that they acted with cunning. They assembled disguises that would put the pink panther uh, to shame <laughs> and approached Joshua. They approached the elders of Israel. They didn't just go thrifting. They went dumpster diving. <laughs> they went and dug out costumes and food that would sell their story. Their story was, hey, we've come a long, long way. Our purpose is to make peace with you. We are your friends, right? We've, we've come from a distant country. We've heard of the miraculous feats that God has done. And we brought you out of Egypt and through the wilderness and saved you. And we want to be friends with you. Joshua was suspicious, and, and probably rightfully so. These guys looked sus, right? This, this story is too good to be true. Surely they're imposters. So he asked again in verse 8, really, tell me, who are you? And they double down. We are your servants. We have come from a long ways away. And as any good salesman who's making a great pitch, they want an answer now. Verse 11, come, now make a covenant with us. Let's seal the deal before it's too late, right? This is great opportunity for you, Joshua. You should do this. I mean, if you've been car shopping, you've experienced one of these people. The key for, pre right, for pressure sales is to get the customer to commit. If they spend time thinking, contemplating, looking at all the angles, they might get cold feet and back away. I mean, that, they, they, they had a plan. Gibeon had a plan, and they were sticking to it. The problem with making a covenant with Gibeon was that God had explicitly commanded the people of Israel to not make a covenant with the people of the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 7, verse 2. This is where we find that explicit command. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So if Joshua was to make a covenant with these people, it would be in direct violation to this clear command of God. Joshua and the elders knew the law. They knew what God had told them and had told Moses. They were not to associate with these people. But, I mean, they didn't look like they were from the land of Canaan. Their appearance seemed to match their story. And, and surely Joshua, as a prudent leader, would give some discerning thought to this and even consult the Lord. I mean, he has interacted with him face to face. But verse 14 tells us that he did not. They did not ask the Lord what they should do. Verses 14 and 15 are really the peak of this narrative, kind of the fulcrum, like what's going to happen. It's where the tension is at a climax. Joshua did not consult with God, and so they made a covenant to let them live. And as the reader, as uh, even for the people of Israel, this was the worst possible 
outcome, at least to this point. The elders of Israel had put the nation in a forbidding, forbidden relationship with the foreigners and the strangers of the land. Now, Joshua had resources at his disposal, right? This wasn't uh, his first rodeo. He was a leader. He was God's picked, uh, ordained leader, and he had resources to figure and discern the truth. I mean, just simply time and truth are friends. Give it a few days. Do a little research. I mean, we, we, we come to a point in this chapter where it's like, oh, it only took a few days for them to figure out the truth. Well, if you wouldn't have been so hasty, could have done that ahead of time. God had even given Joshua a more special means of communication with him. Numbers 27, verses 18 through 23. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall go and stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So here, in verse 21 of Numbers, Joshua has been given a special means of discerning God's will for the people. He had been given what is called the Urim and Thummim. Now, all, we, all he had to do then was ask the high priest, Eleazar, to inquire of the Lord. It was as simple as that. We've also seen Joshua as he's communicated with God, the leader of the Lord's army. So he has resources. Now, we don't have to get, we don't actually have time to get into the, uh, what the Urim is. Maybe somebody uh, has time this week to study that a little bit. But for our purposes here, it proves that Joshua didn't have to be, act hastily and rashly. Joshua and the elders did not consult God. And as the leaders of God's people, they were supposed to have the wherewithal to lead. They were supposed to know we should consult the Lord. Discerning God's will can be difficult. There, there always seems to be times in life where you're faced with a fork in the road. Decisions that are life-altering. Questions of obedience. Questions of right and wrong. Gray areas. Right? Where should I attend college? Who should I marry? Should I, I take this job? Should I buy this car? Should I move residences? These are simple, it seems, comparing them to Joshua. I mean, the, the enemy is knocking at the door. They're in enemy territory, even. And he failed to lead the people in obedience. But for our purposes today, what, what principles should guide us as we make decisions? As we go through life and there's opportunities, how should we think through the decisions that we have before us. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 3, a very familiar passage, but, and it's short. 
and sweet. But if you have your Bible, turn there to Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. You may even know this from memory. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths will make straight your paths. The first principle in trust in, in decision making in contemplating God's will is that you put yourself at his feet and trust him. Trusting in God is an act of recognition that he is in charge and that he knows the future and the plans and you do not. It is putting ourselves under him and walking then in obedience. In Joshua, it appears that the leaders of Israel did not do this. They did not trust God. And while we don't have the Urim and Thummim, right? We don't have that. We have something greater to help us discern God's will. We can know exactly what it is that God's will is for us. God's word clearly tells us that God's will for our life as a Christian is to be holy, is to be made like him. Romans 12, 1 and uh, 12, 12 and uh, 1 and 2. Yeah. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans tells us that the will of God is for you to be holy, to be transformed into his image. And God uses a variety of circumstances in your life to do that. So we trust the Lord, knowing that his purposes are to purify us, are to make us holy. We don't need to be frozen in fear, contemplating God's will for us. Seek him. Seek counsel from those Christians that know you and from those who God has put in your life, and then make a decision. God's goal in your life is holiness. God will use the events, the decisions, and the choices that you make to shape you and form you into that. Even if a decision that you feel was, was um, or, or that you fear was made and it was the wrong choice, maybe looking back, you have all sorts of questions surrounding it. Nothing surprises God. He will use that event to change you into his image. If you are his child, you can be guaranteed of that. So as you look back over the course of your Christian life, I would encourage you to look for that. That no matter what took place, no matter matter the decision you made, question, did God end up growing me? And if he did, you can have confidence in today going forward. But remember, it starts with a trust in him, a looking to him and his word and, and godly counsel and wisdom as you navigate difficult issues. In the areas that are clear, though, obedience is a must. Often these areas uh, require trust. Decisions that seem so clear can be so complicated. And Joshua and the elders of Israel did not 
trust in the Lord, and they did not trust and look to his word. They took this questionable situation and did not lean into the Lord. And so as readers of this narrative, as readers of this chapter, we're left wondering, well, okay, God just judged Achan, like completely judged him and his whole family for not obeying a few chapters ago. He's going to judge Israel, right? And, and what about the Gibeonites? Will, will they too be judged? As the reader, as I'm feeling this tension, that's, that's, those are the questions that I have. Well, when faced with questions like this, we need to remember that humility is the response. And let's look there now in verses 16 through 27. Verses 16 through 27. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that their neighbors, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. It is in these very verses that God's mercy and grace are in full display. As three days came to an end, the deception of the Gibeonites had been discovered, right? Time and truth are friends. Surely the leaders of Israel would right their wrong by attacking Gibeon and destroying it, just as God had commanded and had promised, right? But this wasn't the case. This is not what happened. Despite their hasty covenant with Gibeon, and much to the people's dismay, and probably even fear, the leaders owned their mistake and commanded that Gibeon was to be left alone. We see in verse 21 that they were then sentenced to slaves for Israel. And this is then re-upped by Joshua later. 
the leaders of Israel owned their mistake. They owned it. Instead of acting rashly a second time and breaking their oath, in humility, with, with thought, they acted righteously. They intentionally acted righteously. This is the first example of humility that we see in these verses. Instead of compounding problems, they owned their mistake, and they did not go back on their word. What, what characterized the people of God here in Joshua 9 is their humility. They, they owned up, right? In front of all of the people, they had to say, ah, we can't do this. We promised. The leaders acted humbly in not compounding problems despite even the response of the congregation. And the second act of humility we see in verses 22 through 27. Joshua himself summons the Gibeonites, right? And it, he kind of resays to them what we saw in the previous verses. So these same men were probably, who probably had deceived him earlier were standing before him now and being interrogated. Why, why would you do this to us? In verse 24, they believed God. They believed that they believed God was judging this land and that their only choice that they had was to deceive their way into God's good graces. The Gibeonites had then essentially given themselves into the hand of God. Sound familiar? Rahab. Just like Rahab, who deceived the, the men of the king in Jericho and hid the spies and acted in faith, the men of Gideon also acted in faith. They put themselves into the hand of the one who judges, Israel, Joshua. In verse 25, they, they humble themselves even more. And they express that whatever Joshua sees as right, they will do. They will submit to it. And this is quite a statement. At, at, verse, at face value, this takes massive courage. This takes massive courage. Putting your life into the hands of your enemy and telling them you can do as you wish, that's unique. They were at the mercy of Joshua, and it becomes even more incredible, and we'll see this in more detail next week. Joshua 10, verse 2, tells us that these just weren't some uh, like sheep herders. No, Joshua 10, verse 2 says, He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. What does that tell us about Gibeon, who's humbled themselves before Joshua? They weren't weak. They weren't pushovers. They were strong warriors from a city of power. And yet here they are, humbly submitting to Israel and to Israel's God, willing to become servants just to live. Just like Rahab, they believed God and acted accordingly. The nations of Canaan lived, had lived in their sin long enough. Judgment was coming. And yet, God was willing to save them. God was willing to save them. If only they would, in humility, turn to him. This is God's grace, right? The access to God's grace and mercy isn't to run from him, 
but to run to him and to humbly submit your life into his hands. God's mercy is visible towards his people here in Joshua 9 and towards the Gibeonites. Mercy is the removal of a just punishment. So Israel acted rashly and God could have judged them, but he did not. They did not consult him. He could have um, punished them, but he did not. That is God's mercy. God's grace is clearly seen in Gibeon as they are not just they are not just, uh, punishments not just removed from them, but God gave them grace. He gave them salvation. He gave them life in the land. Both Gibeon and Israel deserved punishment. Israel, as the people of God, acted foolishly. They presumed on God and did not wait patiently and ask for his guidance. Just because you or I are part of the people of God, just because we have the Spirit of God alive in us does not mean that we live perfect lives. No, we have the flesh that we deal with day in and day out. And when we recognize that we are, have operated wrongly in the flesh as part of God's people, it is God's mercy that we need to throw ourselves into. It is God's mercy then that is evident in our lives. The people of God can know his mercy through continually submitting humbly their lives to him, trusting his forgiveness, admitting their mistakes, and not perpetuating the wrongs that they have done. This is what, this is what the, the leaders of Israel did here. They said, we will not compound wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. In turn, the Gibeonites saw that not, they did not receive just the mercy of God, but they also received his grace. Look at verse 27. Gibeon was saved to do what? To serve in the temple. So Joshua didn't just keep his enemies at a, at a distance, right? He didn't just say, well, go live way out on the edge because I don't trust you. He brought them in right into the heart of worship. They would get to experience and see God in his glory, day in and day out. They wouldn't have a choice but to be a part of the people of God. And coincidentally, this plays out through the entire Old Testament. They are now, Gibeon is now woven in to the fabric of the stories of the Old Testament as, as part of the people of God. Even some of David's mighty men were Gibeonites. Mercy and grace are key elements in our salvation and in our walk with the Lord. God has not only taken the punishment that we deserve, but has given us a hope, a future. Gibeon placed themselves in the hand of Joshua. Remember, Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Joshua is the ordained leader of the people of God, a picture of a man who would one day lead the people of God to victory by judging sin. And Gibeon put themselves right in his hand. Maybe you're here and you don't know much about this Jesus, or maybe you're here and you've been a member for years but have not really, or, um, and, and maybe you've been, a member here for, for years and the Lord is still working all of that out in your life. No matter who you are, 
The only place for safety from judgment is in Jesus Christ. He alone can set you free to serve him as Gibeon. Those in Christ serve him by participating in the worship of him. That's exactly what happened with Gibeon. No longer were they enemies far off, but friends who participated in the worship of God. Friend, the entrance into the people of God and a life among the people begins and continues with humility. A humble response when faced with the realization of our sin looks like giving ourselves to God and saying, do as you please. This is not a one-time event, but is an ongoing process in the life of the people of God. Gibeon became servants. The mighty became a servant. We serve a merciful God, and Joshua recognized this, and he granted mercy and grace to those who were once his enemies. He brought them close to God. God's mercy is highlighted in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, in our life, in the life of believers. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Through Jesus Christ, you can be made alive. Alive in Jesus and dead to the passions of your sin. Sin demands God's judgment, but the only place to find safety from it is in the one who took on himself the judgment of God. We see this taking place here in Joshua 9. As the Gentiles then are welcomed in as co-heirs, laborers, ministers in the kingdom of God. This this idea of the the Gentiles, the Gibeonites being brought in, stretches back to the Genesis. The promise that God made to Abraham. The promise that one day, his offspring, through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. Every nation would reap the benefits of God working through the life of Abraham. So while God had commanded the land to be cleansed of sin, the Gibeonites, being allowed to be a part of the covenant people of God, was part of a future reality. It pictures something that it was coming to a greater degree. And friends, that's you and I. Back in Ephesians, a little further down in chapter 2, from verses that we read earlier, verses 11 and 12, say this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands, remember that you too at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Friends, that's you and I. You and I are Gibeon. In our natural state, we are outside of Christ. We are outside of the people of God looking in. We are standing directly in front of God's expanding kingdom, and our sin will be judged. A little side note. Uh, on the book of Ephesians, if you're looking to dig deeper into 
uh, the study of Joshua, I would encourage you to read Ephesians. Some of the themes of Joshua are very cohesive in Ephesians. They transfer over one-to-one. Themes of inheritance, themes of promise, themes of blessing. It would be worth your time to spend even some time this week reading in the book of Ephesians. It's in Ephesians then that we see that we are brought in. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we are now part of the people of God. Praise God that we don't need to be like Gibeon, that we don't need to go dumpster diving and try to sneak in the back door, disguised as something that we're not, right? Put on some, a facade and just try to get in. No, we can come to Jesus in our actual broken reality with humility, and he recognizes us for who we are. This, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of mercy and grace. We don't need to deceive God into taking us. We can bring ourselves, our broken mess, with all the baggage that makes us who we are. And he knows. He knows all of it. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And in fact, being broken is God's specialty. Remember, the people of God are characterized by humility. Humility recognizes its brokenness. Humility says, I'm broken. I cannot fix myself. I fully lean into the person of Jesus Christ. Gibeon found themselves trusting in Joshua to save them from the judgment of God. It even talks about in our verses that Joshua saved them from the hand of Israel, right? God's tool of judgment was Israel, and Joshua saved Gibeon from them. Their reward, as you read through the Old Testament, is that they are now fully part of the people of God. Like Rahab, they're built into God's narrative. Our lives continue to show similarities. 1 Peter 2, 9-11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are a Christian and if you are in Christ, you are royalty a possession of God's. And God's people are different from the world around them. Your life has been changed from a poor beggar to an inheritor of the eternal promised land, a participant in the eternal worship of God. All because of God's mercy and grace, a removal of judgment and an impartation of salvation. And because of that, you can live a life of righteousness. What would living in light of this truth look like? Does the fact that you have received a gift from God change the way that you live your life currently? Are you participating in the worship of God by giving yourself to him, by serving him, as Gibeon did, right? They served in the temple, If you are truly a Christian, 
growing in mercy and grace, growing even in recognizing that mercy and grace from the Lord begins with humility and it plays out through the Christian life as a life defined by humility. It begins with understanding you're truly nothing outside of the power of Christ and that all you have and all you can know is sourced in him. We have been brought into him and the old is passing away and the new is being made. While we were far off, while we were foreigners, through humility we can trust in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ to save us, to save you from eternal judgment. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into your people. Lord, we thank you that that you, through mercy and grace, have given us a gift far beyond ourselves. And Lord, we pray even now as we come to communion, may that truth ever be present in our thought and in our lives. Amen.